Why are you attempting to secure something? Why does this not work the way that I think it should? What it is that they need that can consume intelligence? You really need to know some programming language pretty well. Security is the feeling, right? Destructive power that has to your organization. This is Hack Chat, where red and blue teams unite. Hey everyone, welcome to Hack Chat. I'm Marco Figaro, and today we have a guest, one of my boys. If you've gone to numerous conferences, I'm sure you've bumped into him as well as seen his talks. He is very entertaining, and if you've never seen him talk, I'm telling you, it is entertaining. He's a storyteller, and I, I mean, he's a good friend of mine. Juan Jags, welcome to Hack Chat. Introduce yourself. Thank you, brother. Uh, yeah, so I'm Juan Andres Guerrero Saade, Jags to all my friends in the industry. Um, I hope I am half as entertaining as Marco is making me out to be. I hope you have enjoyed my talks. Um, I uh, uh, Let's see. So uh, nowadays, I, I would identify myself as a cyber paleontologist, more importantly, a you know, threat researcher um, focused on targeted attacks. That's, that's always been my thing. I uh, used to uh, be principal security researcher over at Kaspersky's great, uh, was research star over at Google Chronicle uh, with the uppercase team, just uh, uh, been all over the place doing uh, threat intel. So that, that's my that's my business. Yes, sir. Well, you've been in quarantine for a while. How has it been, especially as a, a threat researcher? How have you been spending your months? Let's go right into it. So I, I have to be honest, I think we all try to put on a brave face, uh, but I think it's also important to just be human and admit that like, it's had its ups and downs. Uh, it's hard, man. It's uh, psychologically, it can be quite difficult. So uh, I was already used to working late nights and being at home, you know, I've been remote for about eight years now. Um, so I've been used to just working until three, four o'clock in the morning, doing my thing, you know, tearing through malware, writing my YAR rules, finding new things. I think what's become hard is not having the conference circuit, not having, you know, that that opportunity to connect face to face, to see some of the impact of what you're doing, to get to uh, just talk to other people that are doing great stuff and be inspired by them. So I've missed that. I that that has been hard. Yeah, it feels like a, a vacation for me when I go to conferences. It's like a vacation. Right. You get to see your family. You get to see you know, the newest and latest and greatest things that are going on. So I do miss that as well. I mean, I haven't traveled since January, right? I haven't been to a conference since February, right before uh, COVID really hit the U.S. So it, it has been tough. And what have you been doing to to grind through those those pains? So I think the the issue for me is my hobby is my work. Mm -hmm. So it became, it, it actually got to a point where I was just doing way too much of it, right? Like you're, you're tearing through, uh, through malware, tearing through ops. And um, I actually got super into building like mechanical keyboards and doing a little bit more hardware stuff. And that kind of thing kind of chilled me out a little bit mm. so that I could keep enjoying just going through all the APTs going through uh, and finding new ops. And, you know, we, we mentioned the cyber paleontology title, um, the whole point was getting inspired and finding things that folks had overlooked. Uh, 
So it, it did give me some perspective to get to sit back and say, all right, what haven't we looked at? What wasn't worth our attention before? What didn't I have the time to go through before? And, uh, you know, the way you said, like, it's, it's a, the conference circuit used to be the vacation. Now it's about turning other projects into vacations. It's about, you know, being able to deviate from that, that main road of work and then saying, well, what would I, what would I have enjoyed that I didn't give myself the time to do? Um, and digging deep into that. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the papers you've written or, you know, draw me like a French APT, right? What was the idea behind that paper? Um, so I, for five years straight, I um, got really into not just attending this conference called Virus Bulletin, which is really interesting, a lot of fun, uh, but also it's a conference that gives you the opportunity to publish a, a paper, like a full-size paper. Uh, they have some great people who would do the editing and they would actually put them out as part of the proceedings. So for me, for five years straight, it became this thing of I'm going to take the time to write um, on a given topic, on, on some abstract conceptual part of the industry that that needs codifying. And um, and I'm going to put something out there. So draw me like one of um, your French APTs, uh, all, you know, joking title aside, uh, was about behavioral profiling and this idea that if we want to understand uh, advanced threat actors, we do well to step back from the attribution and persona idea a little bit, and instead actually profile based on the information that we're getting, um, even in the malware, even in the operational infrastructure, even in the tempo, like things that we were taking for granted that were actually letting us know what this um, what this threat actor how how they're configured mm -hmm. so is it a team that's outsourcing their malware are they developing that stuff in in-house and if they are developing in-house what kind of uh coding profile would they have what what kind of um tempo of production do they have do they produce things really quickly do they improve them do they fix them do they make mistakes do they do quality assurance like there's there's little details like that that are technically discernible that we weren't putting down as part of our profile and understanding of what these threat actors were like. So I wanted to take a step back and say, okay, you know, let's try to forget who is behind this in the sense of what government or what organization. And instead, let's paint a picture of what configuration of a threat actor we're dealing with. Um, and I figured that that would give us more of a lasting value to our threat intelligence than just pointing the finger at, at a certain shop. Um, one of the things I like about your papers is the papers you've published is like still relevant today, right? Maybe even 10 years from now, like, I think you can look back and read and, and still take things away where uh, everything is changing so fast. Like if you wrote a book, right, I think in five, 10 years, it's out of date, right? right? One One of the things I wanted to ask you is why are cybersecurity researchers, you know, analysts so infatuated with attribution? And do you think it hinders the investigation if you call out that an attack is from a nation state? So, I mean, that 
there's a couple of really interesting questions packed in there, right? So first and foremost, I think we're obsessed with attribution because uh, it, it gives us a sense of finality. It makes us think that we've reached the end of the line with an investigation. And for a lot of customers, it makes them feel um, that they have an accurate sense of who is coming after them and, and um, uh, what, what this is all about because they know who is behind it. Uh, personally, I think that not only should we, as receivers of threat intelligence, not be as concerned with attribution, chances are that the producers of our threat intelligence, having been there myself and you've been there as well, um, in the private sector, we are almost never really qualified to do attribution quite fully. Uh, we almost certainly don't have access to a lot of the necessary indicators um, to really do it half of the time that we're talking about nation state stuff. And I say that, I, I wanna put that qualification there because I think there's, there's some exceptions that we should discuss. Like for example, Facebook this week, uh, maybe yesterday, mm -hmm. yesterday came out with this Ocean Lotus report and they, they pointed a company out, mm -hmm. you know, they, they went straight forward. And you know, that's a company whose visibility is about personas. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's quite an interesting outlier. But for the most part, what I wanted to point out is even in a situation like that, where you can say, okay, we know who the hackers are. We know what the company is. Um, cool. Does that mean that you understand where the tasking is coming from? Does that mean that you understand what the organizational means are that um, might connect this shell company or mercenary company to a government and to how, that, how the money comes around, how the tasking comes around? what makes them go after companies X, Y, and Z, and so on. Uh, most of the time, the answer is no. And that's not to say that that should reflect poorly on Facebook or on any other producer, because what Facebook's done is awesome. Mm -hmm. I hope that they do more of it. Um, but rather to say that we should understand what it is we're looking for when we ask people for attribution and what value it has for us. Uh, this would happen a lot with the Chinese threat actors where like, you know, somebody would come and say, look, man, here's the wanted poster. Here's the, the, the Chinese dude from the PLA that hacked your company. It's like, if you're a company like GE or whomever, like, what are you going to do with that? You're going to put his like picture in, in, in your rec room and then, you know, maybe throw darts at it, but you're not going to go rendition that person out of China. You're, you have no recourses like government might to try to do something to them. And at the end of the day, you still have to defend your company and defend your perimeter. And, and you're not necessarily any closer to that because you have that wanted poster. So I think there's a sort of misalignment of expectations there. Yeah, people always want to. It's just like what happened with FireEye. Like immediately it was like Russians like, OK, get it. I understand right. it. Like it's just Russia, Russia, Russia. Right. And and that was like in the report I think filed to the SEC. I could be mistaken, but obviously when they put it out, they said, you know, they already had attribution to Russia. Right. But at the end of the day, it's happened. It's it's out there, right? Yeah, I, I have no idea what happened uh, within Fire. I'm sure only the folks within Fire I really really know. Um, I will say I've worked in a company that has been famously hacked before. And um, there's a couple of things, right? I mean, you, your, your disclosure and your response are two different things. And you, 
your response is all about competence, right? You want to make sure that uh, you want to understand what it is they came for. You understand what it is they got, what potential, uh, you know, destructive power or disruptive power that has to your organization, to your customers and so on. That, that's a, that's a, a serious sort of logistical business uh, and an important one. Then comes the disclosure where you know, like, every person who ever disliked you is going to come throw eggs at you and find this opportunity to, to kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, shit on your company. And, um, and you have to send the right signals, mm. right? You want to make sure that, you know, faith in your brand is not disrupted. And you want to make sure that people understand that this is, you know, that, the way that the nation state sponsored moniker has always worked for breaches, right? This mm. was an act of God. This was, you know, a hurricane that just ran through our city. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry if our business was disrupted a little bit, but this is above and beyond anything anybody could handle. It's hard to make that argument when you're the person that people call to respond to these incidents. Mm -hmm. um, it starts to feel like a uh, emperor's got no clothes type of situation. But in reality, what it is, is, I mean, that that's the espionage game for you. And um, I don't know who hacked FireEye, um, I, I have very little idea. I think that they're doing their best in responding, especially when it comes to some, some of the theft of tools, if that really was the reason that they came in there, releasing countermeasures and what have you. Uh, but I also understand that a lot of this is going to be sending the right signals to customers, keeping the trolls at bay and weathering the storm. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends there and I, I wish them the best. I've been there. And, uh, let me ask you, you say you've been there. How, yeah. how, how, what's the feeling is, is the house on fire is, is what's going on during those, that first week, those, those yeah. first few days, what, what's mm. actually going on? Is everyone like running without, you know, it depends, man. I mean, it depends on what side of the house you're talking to, right? Like marketing people and salespeople are, are not going to be happy. Executives aren't necessarily going to be happy, but as a threat researcher, you're telling me that somebody hand delivered a toy for me to play with to my house. Like when we were working on Dooku 2, I mean, that was, I'm not saying it was all fun. I'm not saying that we were laughing through it or anything like that, but it was, it was awesome. At the same time, you know, like if you look at that, that Dooku report that I will not claim very much credit or any credit for it, the Dooku 2 report, I mean, it was the, the work of amazing people within Kaspersky. It was a concerted effort uh, of a lot of people to tear through a lot of malware of one of the most complex threats, right, that we had seen. Not only were there zero days involved, it was all in memory and doing this amazing, to me, Dooku 2, the way that it was structured, um, it was a threat that understood its target as a network rather than as individual machines. Mm. It hopped in limited ways, it allowed itself to be ephemeral, it allowed itself to get disinfected regularly by virtue of you know somebody rebooting their machines. And then it would hop again across that network and try to find sort of the, the, right, uh, the right places to collect information and do so over time, over a lengthy period. Uh, it was fascinating. You was For a threat researcher, that's, that's awesome. So I, you know, I hope that there's people at fire who are having a field day. I, you know, I'm sure that it's it's defeating. Sorry, sorry, it's it's finding sort of victory out of the jaws of, of some momentary defeat. But I, I really hope they're having a, a field day with it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's times that I'm reversing something and I'm like, wow, this is really good. 
Like kudos to who developed this. They are smart. Right. Really smart. I don't care. Like I'm 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 big. I love to say, hey, I, I tied this to another campaign or another something, but to me, the flag that's it's coming from doesn't matter. It's like, that is cool. You know, figuring out some cool things, you know, is, is super important to me. Like, yeah. one of the things that I love to do, and it's, it, it's not to troll or, or do anything. I love seeing reports mm-hmm. and then going and downloading it and coming right. to my own conclusions right and missing breadcrumbs that they possibly missed that might mm. be value in some way that they may have missed right because they're right. they're reversing they're doing everything and and i could think of three times this happened while i was doing it. i don't want to like say the campaigns or anything mm. but i reached back out to them and informed them hey you missed this you, you right. potentially want to go ahead and publish and add these things because I found more binaries associated with this campaign that you haven't listed. And that stuff always happens, right? It's, yeah. it's not I, it's not a mark of incompetence or anything like yeah. that. These things are so big. There's always so much to it and people focus. Like I, I love um, when you see semi-coordinated disclosures like uh you know kaspersky publishes and semantic publishes and, and eset publishes and they're all talking about the same apt and you notice not just the differences in where they decided to focus or where some of their internal competence is but also hey that you know their visibility works in different ways mm-hmm. right so these guys saw this entire different swath of plugins and these guys saw you know they were missing the third stage but they found this variant and blah 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 um it shows you how complex these things are and, and how many factors really go into it. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. One time I was, um, I was working at an old company, a chip maker, and um, there was a, a, a blog post that, you know, mentioned us, the chip company, mm-hmm. and I was doing reverse engineering on it. And they didn't mention that there was like a fork. If you have, you know, Windows 7 and above, you go here. If you are lower, you go, you know, this way. So they didn't mention, you know, anything below. But for me, I understood that a lot of the machines in like factories run, you know, Windows XYZ. Right. And that affected us, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't see it, but what I'm saying is like, that was important to us. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Now I got this whole thing that they didn't mention, they didn't look at. So I'm going to start digging into it and figuring out, you know, how does this all come together? So it's cool yeah. things like that, right? I, I always find like just these cool little breadcrumbs that, that are left Mm-hmm. that you know you you have to go after it so you understand your business right yeah yeah like that, that's one thing to be said about places that are fortunate enough to have in-house talent which is no incident responder no mssp and no matter how well intentioned is ever going to know your business as well as you do yeah and so you know i get it if you're a, a small company or somebody who's just focused on some other area you're a pasta maker um 
nobody's going to blame you for not having in-house threat intel people. However, when the time comes and, and you know, you got to call in Mandy and to, to come sort something out for you, you can't expect them to know the business the way that you do. Yeah. So, you know, you recognize that difference and you say, okay, this is not just somebody checking for compatibility in an OS variant. This may very well be a fork in the road as to, you know, what our fabs are running. Yeah. Um, or something like that. Right. And that, that takes in, in-house knowledge. Absolutely. I like your approach on uh, generating hypothesis, like to narrow uh, nominal pools. Can you go into that? You spoke about that extensively in, in previous talks. And for the people that are watching that haven't seen your talks, I want you to go into that. Uh, sure. So the idea here, you know, once again, what I mentioned with, uh, with this paper, um, draw me like one of your French APTs was uh, to take on behavioral profiling, which is something that's much more common in criminal investigations and something that has been uh, glamorized in, you know, true crime TV. So we're all familiar with it to some extent, right? This notion that you say, you know, we don't know, for example, we don't know who killed this person, but we can tell just in, in the process of our investigation, we can tell that it's probably a white male and you know, from 30 to 45, who's mm -hmm. five, between five, six and six feet. And they have this much body strength and they, maybe they grew up in this area. And what you're doing when you describe things like that is take a nominal pool, which may very well be every person in the state of Florida mm -hmm. who may have committed this crime. And then you reduce, right? You start to introduce these criteria. You go, okay, well, it's not just every person, it's every male okay, well, out of those males, people that fall within this age range, okay, well, out of those people, it's people who are this tall. And out of those people, so you take a nominal pool, you start reducing, 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 and then what you end up getting is a, is, is a manageable candidate pool. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something that's really relatable, understandable on a criminal side. And it's something that I wanted to emphasize for producers of threat intelligence that we should consider not because we have a massive you know, nominal database of hackers that we could apply this to, but rather because I think that we should be producing lasting value for customers. And that's something that we don't necessarily do when what we're describing for threat actors is, oh, this is GRU office, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is GRU office 24777, and that's who did this attack. Okay, tomorrow the GRU reorgs, and that anchor point is gone. Mm -hmm. I think it's very different to say, look, these hackers, they act in this way. They like these sorts of targets. They only care about these sorts of verticals. When they come in, um, these are the behaviors that they take on. Their tools they seem to be coded in these particular ways. You know, this is their development cycle. This is their uh, their operational tempo. That approaches a behavioral profile with which you can say, hey, look, it's been two years since this report. I might not find the exact anchors uh, that they were basing their, their hypothesis on. However, if I look at the behaviors of this threat, I can still see signs that it's the same school of thought and that's something you can do with a behavioral profile that you can't do when somebody just gives you a little moniker or some perfect attribution 
so I wanted to really emphasize that for folks. I, I think just as a, as, a, as a point to really emphasize there is, dude, remember that just the same way that we change jobs and our teams change, that's happening within these threat actor organizations. That's happening within the, dude, if they're government actors, you think those people are gonna stay there with, with that specialized talent, they're gonna stay working at the same job for five, 10, 20 years, they're gonna move on. Mm -hmm. They're gonna change. And that means the threat actor is gonna change and nobody's gonna send you a notification letting you know, hey, you know, Ocean Lotus just, you know, they, they, they just went through a reorg. Like that's not gonna happen. So, yeah. you know, you, you got to keep that in mind. You have to be flexible. Yeah. I always, I always recommend like to people that are getting into threat hunting, you know, if you want to change your mindset, watch a season of, uh, the first 48, right? I, I do. I am like, watch, start gearing your mind. The first 48, right? right? Just try to take what you learn from that and apply it mm -hmm. and just start getting that mindset of, you know, going through a process, you know, yeah. they got to get, you know, it's critical for the first 48. Obviously we do it faster because we just download the file and go through stuff and, you know, things pop up. But if you take sort of that same investigation route, you know, it, it helps, it helps you. So yeah. I know, I know you love the Lamberts. I want you to, okay. I want you Thank to you. go into the Lamberts and, 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 you know, Describe them, who they are. Um, okay. So for folks who don't know who the Lamberts are, we, um, back when I was at Kaspersky and then ever since, I uh, worked on this amazing threat group. Uh, we now call sort of the, the constellation of the Lamberts or the Lamberts toolkit, uh, particularly because what we saw were this myriad variations of really advanced tooling that was being used in, in a particularly sophisticated way, particularly careful way um, uh, in, in espionage targeting. So uh, the Lamberts appears to be related to Vault 7, uh, which should give you some indication of attribution for, for some of the keener folks that are like really you know interested in that. But above and beyond what organization it may be, I personally think it's probably the most consistently careful, well-resourced, but unspoiled threat actor. And, uh, and I, I put that in contrast to other cream of the crop, one percenter threat actors, like let's say the equation group, mm -hmm. where with the Lamberts, what you see was no superfluous infections. Like they wouldn't just infect target and then leave their tools there and move on to another one and, and basically forget that that first infection happened. Uh, these, these guys uh, and gals are, are cleaning up them after themselves. They're retooling almost all of the time. They're using uh, encryption even for the stuff that they drop. They're not relying on any of the APIs, if, if they can help it, they don't rely on any of the APIs that are, that are in the operating system in order to load their malware originally, they would create these special wrappers. Like the, the, the amount of care that's going into the operational security of this group is just so far above and beyond anybody else's that to me, they're, they're an object of fascination that, that's endured years and years now. And go into, go into the retooling a little bit. How, give me examples of how they were retooling. So um, what I think is, you know, I don't think I have uh, 
a complete sense of how it is that they make their their tools but the sense that you get is they have some advanced uh, software manufacturing process in place for the way that you you know the way that you would see with things like the equation group and and Ramsec and Regin, where you know that um, libraries have been created, processes have been established in order to be very, very careful and very consistent and avoid uh, any quality assurance uh, foibles. But unlike the other ones that I mentioned, the Lamberts, uh, there does seem to be some level of, of specialization and expertise and development that goes down to almost sample by sample or infection by infection where, you know, the file names are all different. The, um, even the composition of the malware isn't exactly the same. It's not like you've got a builder and you're just clicking, you know, make me a new sample and you get this new piece. Um, there, the level of customization that's going into these operations um, for a threat actor that's operating at this scale is, um, is still slightly artisanal, if you will. Uh, and that, to me, suggests a level of um, embedded development quality that you usually don't see with shops that just, you know, let's say buy a really advanced toolkit from Raytheon or whomever, and then they just use that builder forever. They just, you know, click, build, move on. That kind of stuff is meant to be dummy proof, right? If you get some uh, government contractor who doesn't really know how computers work and they, you know, that's just your person who's going to point and click and make the operation happen. Then you've got to create software that they can't mess up. You've got to idiot proof the op. Uh, whereas with the Lamberts, the, the sense that I get is that the operators are genuinely skilled people. The developers are nearby and there is a, a level of care where none of this is hands off. Yeah. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Sounds like they have like a software development life cycle and, hmm. you know, they, they are amazing. You also talked about having like, they're running simultaneous tools, right? Where they're on their operations. They usually you would have, okay, someone's running an operation. They, they have this framework that they're using and this is how right. you can go back and track. And you, you in the past had talked about that. You yeah. want to go into it? Yeah, my cat's uh, yelling bloody murder. Um, yeah, they. Uh, that's something that I think is also particularly interesting is the style of investment that they seem to take on, right? Uh, with things like, again, I keep going to the equation group because it's a, it's a nice corollary and one that we understand quite well. You have really advanced toolkits uh, that clearly take, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of investment and you kind of run them for a certain period of time and you modify them and whatnot. And then you go, let's say, you know, double fantasy is from, you know, don't quote me on the dates, but let's say that it's, uh, you know, 2010 to 2014, 2014. Uh, and then you go triple fantasy, the next level. And it's 2013, 14 towards 2017. You, you see a sort of step ladder of, you know, we improved, we kept going for a few years, then the next one, we kept it going for a few years and so on. Whereas with the Lamberts, what appears to be the, the way that they manage their frameworks is you've got three, four frameworks at the same time. Uh, and maybe that reflects different teams. Maybe that reflects different you know, types of ops. But in any case, 
the way that it translates is a level of operational security where if somebody like me comes around and finds a sample or finds five samples and then develops a, gen a generic signature, um, even if I burn that whole framework by some kind of threat intel wizardry, I'm not burning all of their ops. I'm not even coming close to seeing what all of their ops are. And that's, uh, I think that that speaks to an organization whose emphasis on tradecraft is baked into their DNA. And they know that operational security is a matter of life and death, and it isn't just something to play with. It isn't just plain spies. So, uh, it, you know, I think when you were talking about reverse engineering and admiring, you know, how clever something is, I think it's a labor of love. Uh, and I'm definitely fanboying over this threat actor uh, <laughs> just because I, I think they're amazing. I think they do amazing work. Yeah. Yeah. Take us through the steps that lead you to find um, a binary or just you publish so many papers, right? So as a threat researcher, when does it dawn on you that this specific binary is going to lead to something bigger? So that's kind of hard to answer in a generic sense because every one of them is different. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll talk about something that I haven't talked about publicly yet, just as I think it's a good example of something on the top of my mind, right? Mm. Um, so there was a um, really fascinating case in 2011 in Turkey um, about this, uh, some journalists that got um, arrested as part of some like conspiracy roll up in Turkey at, at the time they were having these Ergenekon trials, which is like this deep state conspiracy uh, set of um, arrests. Like if the whole deep state nonsense were on steroids and we decided to arrest every person that we consider to be a part of the deep state, that's what was happening in Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really fascinating. And uh, if you wanna see some of the, some of what came out of that, uh, Andrada Fiskutan, whose name I might be butchering, this is Romanian journalist over at Vice wrote a, a really great article about it. Um, again, sorry, my cat's just lounging around here. Um, Andrada Fiscutana wrote an article, and the, the, the way that it becomes salient to us is this incident happened, and it became clear that malware had been used to upload uh, incriminating documents onto the machines of these victims. So they were being framed with malware-based operations. And uh, the malware toolkit is one that we hadn't seen before. Uh, and at the time, uh, my mentor, Kosin Ryu, and I like got really into it. And we decided, you know, we're going to hunt this thing down. This is a new threat cluster. Uh, we called it Octopus Brain because it was based on some of the, the strings that they were using in Turkish internal to, to that uh, malware. And we hunted, 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 and we found nothing. It, that's one of those things where you go, okay, I know this set of binaries is going to give me something interesting. I've already seen what the real human impact of it is. Um, which is, I think, one of the, the biggest ways that you know that something's worthy of investment. It's, you know, I'm seeing where the human uh, side effects of this are. We hunted, 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 and found nothing. And this was, I mean, the, the original uh, incident happened in 2011. We were hunting sometime in 2015 when a lot of the court, you know, case uh, documents came out and so on. Um, we couldn't find anything. I come back to it about a year ago. And um, as I'm, you know, developing new 
code similarity techniques and new ways to try to find related malware, I stumble upon a single binary that was related to some of the stuff. That right there and then I'm like, whatever I find based on this is going to be worth my investment. Mm -hmm. I already know kind of where, how nefarious this group is, how willing they are to do things that I think are just above and beyond not cool, right? Um, sorry, let me take a, a cat interlude here, sweetheart. There we go. Okay. Um, so above and beyond not cool, right? If you're using malware to incriminate journalists and arrest them, I think you have made it onto our bad list without any kind of gray area. Um, so found a single sample, start writing rules, end up finding about 40 something samples, 10, 12 modules worth of functionality. And what it looks like is the octopus brain stuff that we, that we had originally found uh, was a beta version that they were just starting to develop in house. And then the new thing, which I, I call egomaniac based on some of the, uh, the strings in there seems to be the new toolkit developed into, you know, it took maybe two, three, four years more uh, is where we've seen a lot of these samples. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I bring out. And I, um, I'd rather share with other threat researchers and hopefully discover enough of what's happening in these operations, discover enough of the indicators, enough of the toolkit, enough of the victims to make a big splash when you come out with it and say, you know, put a serious dent in their ops and say, okay, like here's a threat cluster we were not aware of. But it all starts with one binary. I mean, we started when when Kosin and I looked at this in 2015, um, I think between Van Duke samples, which was one of the rest they were using, and the uh, octopus brain samples, at most we had 10 binaries, and then we had, you know, nothing more to go on. And then the code similarity engine that I was using produced one sample that then led me to 45 binaries. Mm. Um, it's a sort of you know, you take what you can get. They're gold nuggets that you're sifting out of a river. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You're not waiting for a break. You're gonna you're gonna treasure every little bit that you get and see what else you can you know you can take on from there. But the I think, uh, long story short, to answer your question, there's nothing quite like understanding the human impact of what a malware-based operation is doing. Mm. Mm. I love pulling on on that string and then, you know, see what it what. It gets you. How does time favor the attackers compared to the time that favors the analyst over time? I know I, I've heard that over and over again. That's something that I know I've written about. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and to be fair, I am fairly certain that I'm stealing that distinction from the Grug um, in one of his early talks, maybe, you know, four or five years ago. Uh, but in any case, I think it's a fantastic observation on his part and one that I'm, I'm more than happy to, to borrow or steal. Um, essentially, if you think about it, uh, time really favors the attackers uh, in the lead up, basically left of boom, as we, you know, as, as folks like to say, you know, before the, um, the attack and leading up to the attack, that is all the attackers, right? We, at best, uh, we're trying to prepare for something that we don't know. We don't know that it's coming. We don't know how they do it. We don't know what they're using. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. Most of the time, we don't know that it is happening, even when it is. So again, all of that is the attackers getting to, to do their thing quite happily. Um, it isn't until we become aware that we can formulate some kind of response and we can formulate some use of our limited resources. However, 
I think it's important to understand that that dynamic is not constant. It very quickly starts to favor the defenders and indefinitely favors the defenders uh, for a, a time proportional to how long our visibility lasts and how long we keep some of those indicators. But the reason that I put it that way is attackers can't go backwards and remove their samples from virus total or keep themselves from having been put in uh, whatever log stash and log storage has been put away. Sure, they do some cleanup, but if they didn't, or if they forgot certain things, um, whatever's kept there is gonna go on to other systems, whatever you know, passive DNS resolutions and registration information of their domains has been kept in other systems. Basically there's this entropic quality to, to indicators that are just gonna start disseminating themselves all over the place and they're gonna be there for as long as systems keep them. So that's how I tend to emphasize a lot of the paleontology thing is we have a tendency to wanna investigate things when they're hot and new. Everybody today is super focused on the FireEye hack. Mm -hmm. A week ago, you know, it was some other fancy breach. It's, oh, trick bot stuff. And the week before that is whatever hot APT got released. And we're all chasing the same ambulances. And the truth is that we don't have as many indicators at the time. We don't have the benefit of new technologies that come along. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, this example that I was talking about with this Turkish malware it's not, we didn't find stuff in 2015, not because we weren't trying, but because we didn't have the technology to find it. Mm. Whereas, you know, five years later, you've got all this new code similarity tech and that stuff just pops out. Yeah. So there's something about the benefit of hindsight that we should consider uh, enough to motivate us trying to more consistently go back to things like looked interesting that we might not have had results at the time or, or we just, you know, we didn't have luck at the time. We didn't have time and resources to do it. Uh, but I hope that more and more researchers will take the time to go back to some of their favorites and do some revisiting of, you know, old friends and, and hopefully find some things that are worth talking about. Yeah, you, you preach uh, malware paleontology a lot. How much time did you set aside to dig uh, deep and build your case, like, the moonlight maze, right? It was, right. that was amazing, right? What, what was that time frame like? How much time did you put into it? Moonlight maze was an unusually large effort for us. Uh, that took a lot. That took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort for a variety of reasons. So for folks that don't know, um, Moonlight maze was an attack, was probably the earliest acknowledged nation state attack against the United States. Uh, it was at the time attributed to Russia. Um, this I'm talking about 1995-96 era. This is old school. Um, what was really interesting about Moonlight Maze is that none of the indicators or samples and so on ever made it out uh, to the public view outside of classified environments. And then from, from what we understand from Thomas Ridd's FOIA requests and investigations, um, the samples and a lot of the uh, materials collected during that investigation were destroyed as part of just FBI procedure. So uh, Thomas Ridd, great friend, great author and academic and researcher, um, he kept digging. And we just, you know, we were talking about this consistently and just sort of fascinated with this early attack. He kept digging and digging and digging. And not only did he find more things through FOIA requests, through interviews, 
But eventually he hones in on this, this uh, lovely man in the UK called David Hedges, who was a system administrator for um, an organization that you know just did human resources work in the UK. And uh, they had gotten hacked back in the 90s and they were being used as a proxy to tunnel into US organizations uh, by this attacker. Uh, and unbeknownst to them, at the request of the FBI, David Hedges actually turned that command and control server, that proxy, against the attackers. So he was collecting everything they were doing. He was keeping logs. He was keeping binaries. He was everything that they did when they were going through that proxy, he kept. And at the end of the investigation, he just kept everything. He put it in a, in a vault. He kept the machine. You know, when famously, when Thomas called him, uh, he kicked something under his desk and he said, yep, yeah, it's still here, still running. Wow. Uh, so that's, that was his big break for us where we found this fossilized, essentially, uh, trove of, of indicators of materials for an investigation that otherwise would have been entirely impossible. Uh, so when we found this thing and David, you know, was able to share this with us and we, you know, we built up the trust, we built up the relationship, um, it took us about six, seven months worth to just analyze all the stuff that was in there. And when I say we, I mean, you know, Kosin Ryu, once again, uh, Thomas Ridd, uh, Danny Moore, who's over at Facebook now, is also a professor at King's College London, um, and I, the four of us, we spent about six months just trying to comb through all this stuff, trying to reverse samples that were built for systems that weren't even around when I, you know, when I was growing up anymore. Um, and that, a lot that, of fun. It's did a lot that of work, machine you know? make it into the spy museum? Yeah. Yeah. I got to take a, a nice picture with it. It's a, if you go to the spy museum in DC, it's a, it's part of the permanent collection for uh, their, their cyber war and cyber espionage exhibit. Uh, but it's fascinating, man. It's just this, you know, the, this tower a little bigger than what we're used to now. If you're, you know, part of the PC master race, um, they, that thing saw two years worth of uh, of attacks on the United States military and all sorts of, you know, government organizations. I, that is amazing. It, it, the fact that he still had the machine, it's that right there is. That's a threat until miracle, man. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that might not ever happen again. How do you uh, expand the scope when looking into a threat actor's uh, genealogy? Um, so it's quite difficult. Uh, it is actually quite difficult. Most of the problems that we face, or at least that I face when doing with this kind of work, um, has to do with inadequate tooling and inadequate just general organization of indicators, right? Like uh, I keep a, a what I consider a big malware collection here in my house, which is maybe 40 terabytes, which is next to nothing compared to uh, some of the AV companies and Virus Total and so on, which which have collections in the petabytes, it is quite hard to organize that information. It's hard to organize metadata about that information. It's hard to organize um, observations and tags on that information. And then, you know, on top of that, what you're trying to do is understand how that information correlates. So. For me, when I'm doing genealogy work, when I'm trying to understand how things have developed over time, a lot of my time is spent timelining and organizing things. And um, then trying to understand how a lot of the um, 
sort of code correlates how the code was developed over time, where I see unique code being used, where I see bulk of common code being reused and trying to paint the picture. And uh, I'll tell you, I mean, it's not easy work to begin with, but a lot of it also feels like you're fighting against your tools. Mm. Mm. So, you know, there's room to grow there. There's room to develop. Uh, I think some folks are doing exciting things um, in that direction. Uh, but overall, the biggest fight is against uh, our own technology and our own analysis capabilities. Can you go into... Can you go in deep into Gossip Girl and describe how a collection of entities work together and, and the stuff that you published with Gossip Girl is amazing? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of my favorites for sure. Um, so for folks that don't know, I mean, we're not talking about the, the TV show, but uh, Gossip Girl uh, was a code name that we saw, but we, I mean, Silas Cutler and I saw in some of the leaked Snowden docs, some, some leaked slides from the Canadian intelligence agency, CSEC. Um, and we started this investigation, the sort of parallel reconstruction to try to understand who Gossip Girl was. You know, who is this threat actor? What is it that they're doing? Where have they been? Have we seen them before? And what that led us to was a super fascinating cluster of not one threat actor, but rather at least four threat actors that were correlated, that were acting together. So I, at the time I coined the, the term uh, supra threat actor, uh, which some folks don't really like, but for me, what, what it exemplified was what term can we use to describe the cooperation between multiple threat actors um, that are, have an independent history, they have their own toolkits, they, they do their own ops. And then clearly in this case, we're seeing that they also do ops together. Um, so it, it felt like we're missing sort of an ontological category, something above just threat actor, like a gang of threat actors. Um, and, uh, and that's what I was referring to with a super threat actor. So Gossip Girl is a super threat actor uh, correlation between uh, Flame, Dooku, the Equation Group, and Flower Shop, which is one that people don't know quite as well. And uh, what they come together to, to do, this sort of, you know, Captain Planet moment of putting, you know, combining all their, their efforts was uh, Stuxnet. And uh, realizing that Stuxnet had been uh, the result of a collaborative framework between these four, at least four threat actors in any given moment uh, who were correlating, you know, who were, um, sorry, coalescing their frameworks to build different components and bring in some of their own zero days and bring in some of, you know, you, you take care of the payload and I'll take care of the command and control uh, module and we'll take care of the delivery method. And, and that evolves over time, uh, but is clearly being done among multiple organizations. Nice. I know we're going to go deep into this topic. What, why aren't you a fan of the diamond model and the miter attack framework? Um, so, I mean, that, that's where I start to alienate people m much more so than, than with <laughs> something like Supra threat actors, but, um, I'm not a fan. Look, I, I'm a, I'm a philosophy major and, um, I have this natural distrust 
of analytical frameworks to begin with because by design, they are tools that are meant to give your thinking structure and rigidity and uh, consistency. And that's great, except that with that comes blind spots. And in, with that comes uh, sort of systematic failures that are consistently replicated uh, based on the shortcomings of a given framework. So I'm sure that the people who put together the diamond model and the people who put together the attack framework have really good intentions. And they're helping a lot of people that feel that they need structure and they need some way to organize all of this difficult to grok information. But to me, I don't want to see more analyst resources being plunked into the diamond model or into the attack framework precisely because I think that we're still at a stage where we're learning what the shape of the attacker looks like. We're still trying to figure out what diverse cases we're dealing with. We're dealing with edge cases all of the time. We're dealing with analytical shortcomings all of the time. And while I know that we need structure for the formation of analysts' minds going forward, um, I think that anybody who's come from a good school of intelligence analysis will tell you that um, there are few things quite as bad as an analyst getting too comfortable inside of a given box. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, it's a difficult situation. I know a lot of customers are demanding that things be put into the attack framework, um, you know, shape and, and, and these, you know, indicators, and this is what this technique was like and whatnot. And I'm sure that that's useful for customers on some level. Um, but for analysts, I think that it's not a good analytical tool. It's not something that I want to see people rely on quite so consistently. I wish they didn't have to spend quite so much time on it, uh, precisely because what it's doing is putting distance between the analyst and the object of their analysis. And it's making it overgeneralized, right? You tell me this threat did lateral movement and that threat did lateral movement. Cool. But when we look at them, it's like, they did lateral movement completely different. Everybody does lateral movement. What do you mean that they did lateral? Movement? Mm -hmm. It's like, what, what do you, are we just trying to prioritize things by tally marking what they did in general and, and similarities between two stories? It's, it, I don't understand the value of it um, other than overgeneralization and being able to put things in Excel spreadsheet and say, you know, if, if you squint your eyes, these two operations look very similar. But in reality, they're completely different. It's just you've painted them with a with a crayon box that only had eight colors. Yeah. What's next for Juan? Mm. That is an excellent question. That I would love to know the answer to that. But um, in terms I, of, know, of of that next step of the next paper, the next thing that's going to come out. So I had told myself that I was done writing long-winded VB style, you know, 30, 40, 50 no, you're papers, not. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm probably not. I, you know, I've been having conversations with people. My first ever VB paper was something called the ethics and perils of APT research. And it's been five years now. And a lot of folks keep bringing this paper up and there are aspects of it that I think have matured and that need discussion again. So I'm starting to 
debate whether that would be something that I want to take on. Um, I may very well talk about how the threat intel space has matured and where some of the new shortcomings are and where some of the predictions of, of ethics and perils fell short and where some of them were not ambitious enough and, and things that you know we should discuss about the, the APT space. So that, that's one thing. The other is I have been really bad about codifying some of the findings that I've that I've been running into during this COVID era in my blog. So I need to, you know, release some threat indicators for this um, this Turkish threat that we were just discussing. Um, I did a hit B talk, a hack in the box talk. I have no idea what just fell. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea what just fell. Um, I did a hack in the box talk um, recently that I haven't written the blog post for yet, but essentially uh, using code similarity to find the missing link between the equation group toolkit and the Regan framework. So I, I found a slightly newer version of Regan that actually looks like an amalgamation of both frameworks. Um, mm. So things like that, that I, you know, I need to take the time to sit down and write and, and be able to put that forward for others to, to analyze uh, and just, you know, just keep the research going, keep this sort of paleontology train running. Nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you oh, have any pleasure. final words for the people out there? Any advice? Uh, you know, keep, keep your sanity, make sure that you're doing things that, that genuinely feed your soul and, and not just your waistline. I, uh, I think, you know, COVID times have been, uh, times of, of simultaneous deprivation and indulgence. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's few things quite like pursuing your passions. If, if you have a doubt as to what to do with your time, um, I personally find that few things are as enriching as taking the time to learn things that you are fascinated by that um, that you never had the time to before. Now you do. I mean, yes, we can sit around and scroll through Instagram for four hours, or you can finally take time to learn how to reverse engineer certain edge cases and how to you know, write YARA rules if you hadn't learned that before. It's a great time for trainings. Uh, Nico Brule has his reversing training out there. Vitaly Kremez has his reversing training out there. Uh, uh, Kostin Ryu did his Yara training, which is amazing. Uh, and sure, these things take a little bit of investment, but if you're fortunate enough uh, to be able to take advantage of them, this is a time to grow, uh, to build your toolkit, and uh, and to bring it to bear onto the world. So, you know, I, I hope that folks can can take advantage of that time and enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Juan. Thank you, brother. You guys, see you next time. Have a good one.